Well, join me in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, this morning we are finishing the book of Colossians as we look at verses 7 through 18. And the title of our sermon this morning is called The Band of Brethren. Our key words for our worshipers and training are faithful, encourage, and greeting. If you want to join us in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 985, page 985. Well, one of the important things that a nation does is honor its heroes. We see that in the Bible, and we see that in our own tradition. I think it's an important and necessary tradition, and it dates back to the very beginning of time. There are men and women throughout history who have done amazingly heroic things in service to their nation, but even more importantly, in service to their neighbor in some amazing moments that have required split decisions of life and death and courage and bravery and strong conviction of purpose to carry out on to the end. I like to read the stories of those who have received the Medal of Honor in the United States military. It's, it's the highest honor that the military can give to a service member. And quite often, because of the sacrifice that is required to even qualify for the Medal of Honor, it is given to someone after they have died. In our ongoing conflicts since September 11, 2001, 24 American servicemen have been awarded the Medal of Honor. The stories of each of them are absolutely remarkable stories like Army Specialist Kyle White. On November 9, 2007, members of the 503rd Infantry Regiment abruptly ended meeting with some local villagers in Afghanistan and departed to get back to their home base because of reports they had received. And several villagers followed them on their way and followed their unit on this 20-minute trek up into the mountains. And no sooner did they break off on another trail, they began to hear small arms fired in the distance. And the enemy began to initiate a three-pronged attack against the unit. And Specialist Kyle White turned toward the enemy and emptied his magazine in the direction of the suspected targets. And after he dropped his magazine and loaded a new one into his weapon, an enemy uh, rocket-propelled grenade detonated right near his location and knocked him off and unconscious. As he awoke, an enemy round fragmented near his head, sending shrapnel into the side of his face. White and four others were now cut off from the rest of their patrol, and he made an assessment of the situation, and he saw that one of his men off in the distance had been shot in the arm. And so he moved to the man, and he applied a tourniquet to his arm to stop the bleeding, all the while being shot at. White dropped his pack and realized that now his radio was hit, and he could not call for help. Their only concealment came from the loose canopy of a, of a single tree that came out of the side of a cliff, and below them, uh, it provided just enough shade to make them difficult targets for the enemy. White now noticed that another man in the distance was badly wounded out in the open about 10 meters away, and so he rushed from his location, sprinting across the expanse under enemy fire, ricocheting all around him. He began to drag the man in the direction of his initial location and realized that the enemy fire was now concentrated on him. And so he ran back to his location, and he ran back and forth to draw fire to himself that it not go to his 
uh, to his fellow soldiers, and he did this sprint and drag several times until eventually he got his teammate to a more protected location, applied a tourniquet, and treated him until that man died. He then looked at the man he initially treated and saw that he had now got hit in the leg, so he sprinted over to him and pulled off his belt and applied a tourniquet to him to stop the bleeding. And once it was all, he thought, all under control, he looked out and saw his platoon leader lying face down on the ground, and he wanted to go check and see if he was alive, and so he sprinted out to his platoon leader only to find that he too was dead. And so he checked all of the men and all of their bodies on the ground to see if he could find a functional radio. And eventually he did, and he called for support. And as soon as he called for support, there was friendly mortar fire going on all around him, causing another concussion for him. After nightfall, after four hours of this, he was able to establish a security perimeter with surviving Afghan army troops, and he called for a medevac to get the surviving men out of the area and all of the bodies of the men who had died, and he made sure that he did not leave until everyone had been recovered. And so this attack ended with the loss of six American lives, multiple wounded, and Specialist White was extraordinarily brave and showed remarkable skill and judgment and put his own life in the way of harm for the good of others. And six years later, he was rewarded the Medal of Honor. Now, it's an amazing story, and when when I think about stories like this, I'm reminded of a lot of brave soldiers. But not just soldiers on the battlefield for a nation, but all around the world in service to Christ. Soldiers of the cross. Men and women who are part of a band of brethren who will willingly die to themselves day by day and who will willingly die in the name of Christ for the sake of the kingdom. But while the recipients of the Medal of Honor are remarkable soldiers and and quite special in the military and to a nation, the men and women who are in the band of brethren serving Christ really aren't that remarkable. They're people like you and I, rather normal people living normal lives but with a desire to honor God, to love our neighbors, and to make sure that we are loving and serving in a way that we are making it known to the world that Jesus Christ is King and that the church is central to our lives and the calling that we have to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Soldiers of God don't go out in the world with guns and grenades as our weapons, but with the truth and with love and with a concern in maintaining the health and beauty and integrity of the church of Jesus Christ that he died for. And for every story that there is, like that of Specialist White, thousands more could be told of the great triumphs of grace that have overcome darkness and have been the cause of great light breaking into and through darkness into the world, of faithful men and women who have been willing to die to themselves, who have been willing to put their lives on the line for the advantage of their neighbor, regardless of the danger, regardless of the cost, because Christ was enough. 
And so as we, as we think about the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians this morning, I want to acknowledge that in God's kingdom, the Apostle Paul would be a rightful recipient of the heavenly medal of honor. We've seen throughout this letter that as he sat in prison and composed this letter, he's, he's enduring great suffering that came as a result of his circumstances. He joyfully proclaims Christ. He expresses great concern for this church that he has never even visited. He shows tremendous love for Christ and for his people. And here at the end, he wants to encourage the brothers and sisters to keep pressing on, blessed by the grace of God and the glorious truth of the gospel. He's addressing this band of brethren that that you and I, if we are Christians, can be so thankful that we are a part of, knowing that when when we are down and when, when the enemy surrounds us and we are taking heavy fire, that we are a part of a family of faith that sends its best, its bravest, its most faithful to pull us to safety by their words and by their actions and by the proclamation of the truth. And so Paul was certainly one of those men, but so were many others, and he mentions them by name in this final concluding passage. So let's read together, beginning in verse 7 of Colossians chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Erapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. There are a lot of names, some interesting references to specific locations here, and a tremendous display of love and affection from the Apostle Paul toward this church who he never knew in person. So let's look at three specific areas as we finish this great letter this morning. The first in verses 7 through 9 that we see is that Christians should always strive to encourage one another with the news of gospel progress. 
Now, Tychicus is the first name mentioned by Paul here in verses 7 and 8. He's mentioned four other times throughout the New Testament, but always sort of in passing. He was a man who arrived at the end of Paul's missionary work in Ephesus, and it was likely that he was a convert under Paul's ministry. He was very loyal to the Apostle Paul, and as such, he experienced much of the same danger, much of the same challenges that Paul faced being a faithful Christian in a hostile world. And you're right, you might recall that Tychicus was one of the seven who accompanied Paul uh, as, he traveled from, uh, as he traveled to Jerusalem in Acts 20 to meet with the Jerusalem council. He was also likely the one who carried the Macedonians' offering from the poor uh, to Jerusalem, excuse me, to the poor in Jerusalem from Macedonia. Uh, when Paul was arrested, it was Tychicus and Luke with a few others who, who stayed with Paul throughout his uh, imprisonment in Caesarea, his appearance before noblemen, his, his miserable voyage and shipwreck en route to Rome, his time in Rome awaiting trial. He was always there. He was a faithful Christian. He was a faithful companion to the Apostle Paul. And so Paul chose him as a messenger back to the church, and he was given two duties, two things Paul gave him to do. First, he was called on to deliver Paul's letters, one to the Colossians, and another to a slave owner named Philemon, one to the Ephesians, and it appears as though there was also a letter to the Laodiceans, which we will look at shortly. And so he had these letters to deliver, at least four of them. His second duty was the very important task of telling the churches in Asia about Paul's circumstances. Now, this is one of the things I love about having other ministers come to our church, having our coordinator from the Reformed Baptist Network come to our church to deliver updates of what is going on all around the world and the work and the efforts of our brothers and sisters in Christ in different places in the world. There are churches being planted, there are seminaries being built, there are men being trained, there is evangelism being done, there are amazing efforts being put forth by everyday common Christians with an extraordinary desire to see people come to know and love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. When I get missions reports in my email inbox or I read updates of, in newsletters and, and read the prayer guide that gets sent out or hear from missionaries in our general assembly when we hear from our coordinator, I, I'm always so encouraged. And that, that's something that we should want to hear about. It's why I always ask guest preachers, if we have time during the Sunday school hour, to share about what's going on in their local church, what the Lord is doing, and share with us how we can be praying for them. It's why I always want to encourage all of us when we're traveling on vacation or on business trips to find other like-minded churches to attend so that we can be encouraged by the brethren in the work that they're doing for the gospel, work that oftentimes we don't even know about. It's easy for us to turn inward and to, to think about ourselves and to consider what we do. And as much as we strive to do to be faithful people in the cause of the gospel for the kingdom of Christ, the reality is that there is much going on in this world that we can and should be thankful for and that we need to hear about. It is so encouraging to know that we have brothers and sisters and they're out in the world doing amazing things for Christ. And hearing about those amazing things, 
They can, they can inspire us in our own efforts. They can encourage us to keep pressing on. They can be a reminder to us that we are not alone. They can be an assurance to us that God is still at work all around the world, calling every tongue, tribe, people, and nation onto himself and for his glory. So Paul had Tychicus give this update to the church. In fact, he said, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. I hope we're all encouraged when we hear about the work that's going on in West Atlanta or in Indonesia or in Papua New Guinea or Ireland or Colombia or Barbados or India or Kenya or Uganda or Michigan or Florida or California or Arizona all over the world for the sake of God's kingdom. And and don't you love how Paul describes Tychicus in verse 7? He didn't do anything special by any earthly measure. He was a common Christian with a faithful heart, and Paul calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. He didn't leave any special writings that we know about. He didn't do anything special written about by Luke in Acts or Paul in his letters. He was a common Christian. But God used him in remarkable ways to support the ministry of the kingdom. He would be the rightful recipient of the spiritual medal of honor. And we know that because as ordinary as he was as a man and as a Christian, here we are over 2,000 years later talking about him. There is greatness in the smallest things done for Christ. What, what would have been the use of Paul's letters if they were never delivered? What would be the use of those towering thoughts that we looked at in chapter 1 about, about the preeminence of Christ over all things and all of creation if nobody ever read those things? It is the seemingly small, unromantic things that we do for Christ that are often absolutely indispensable in God's work. And we will never know how much that is the case until we get to heaven. So we should share our stories. We should encourage one another with the triumphs of the gospel. We should remember everyone who is involved along the way and give God all of the praise and glory for what he is doing. Well, notice in verse 9, Paul also mentions Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Now, you regular readers of the New Testament know that Onesimus is featured prominently in Paul's letter to Philemon. He was one of Philemon's errant slaves. He had escaped Philemon and fled to Ephesus and then to Rome, and his hope was to be lost in the anonymity of the large city, but instead of losing himself, he was found by Christ. An amazing transformation took place in his life, and so while he was once restless and once ungrateful, he was now filled with love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. Onesimus had been revolutionized by God's grace. He was taking steps toward reconciliation with Philemon. 
And we know that when we read these two letters together, and we know that any time a man or a woman takes a voluntary step toward restitution, we can be sure that something radical has happened in their hearts. God takes his people and he transforms them. And we should be eager to hear those amazing stories of God's grace. Think about this story. One Nisimus, a slave to Philemon, is now trying to be reconciled to him because he escaped from him. What what kind of work of God has to be done in his heart that he would seek to be reconciled to now a brother in Christ under these circumstances? It's an amazing work of God. But I've known, I've known liars who've become proclaimers of the truth. I've known thieves who have made things right and paid for the consequences of their sins. I've known drunkards who have turned away from their enslavement overnight. I've known promiscuous men and women who have been faithful and devoted husbands and wives. I've known all kinds of sinners who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm one of them. And it's all through God's powerful word of his gospel, giving new hearts and new life in Jesus Christ, removing us from the kingdom of darkness and putting us into the kingdom of light as new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing, glorious new creations. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Do you know what that's like? I love to hear the stories of what God does in the lives of his people and what he's doing in all of the various parts of the earth. Do you have one of these stories like Tychicus or Onesimus or the Apostle Paul? You can by faith. It is because Jesus fulfilled the law given by the Father that by faith we can stand upon his righteousness alone. It is because Jesus died on the cross that we can stand and on on our behalf he died in our place taking upon himself the full penalty of the wrath of God that we might know life. It is because he was buried in the grave and ascended three days later that we can know life everlasting. And by faith, if we come to Christ, we too will have a story The circumstances will be different. The names involved may be different, but the gospel is the same. The truth is the same, that God continues to transform our lives, to give us new hearts, to give us new lives in Christ, to bring us into his family as the band of brethren. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you have done. By faith, the Lord Jesus Christ will lovingly, graciously, and mercifully save you as you come to him. And we find in the midst of that, Paul shows us in verses 10 through 14, our second point this morning, that fellowship in Christ transcends cultural and ethnic boundaries. Now, one of the things that becomes more and more true of me the more I grow up as a Christian is that I want to spend more and more time with other Christians. I've thought about this often because I want to have friends who aren't Christians because I want to take advantage of every opportunity to be a faithful citizen of this earth, not isolating myself away from the world, but engaging the world through, through thoughtful and purpose, purpose-filled 
Christian worldview and conversation, and should the Lord be pleased to use those relationships to bring someone onto Himself? What a wonderful opportunity to be a part of. But when it comes down to it, when it's a matter of me needing someone to help me with some, something, or if I'm in a bad situation, or if I'm in trouble, or if it's at the end of my life and I know it, the people I want closest to me, the people I'm going to call, are God's people that I've spent my life getting to know, the people I've served with, the people I've loved, the people I've feasted with and laughed with and cried with and gone through good times and bad times together with, the people I've worshipped with and prayed with and done missions with. These are the people. I want God's people in my life. And the older I get, the more important that becomes because life is hard. (laughs) And the Christian life is hard. And I need other believers around me to help me in this hard life. And one of the blessings that I've had in my life is the opportunity to travel to different places in the world, to visit different churches, and to to meet different Christians. And I'm always amazed at how warm and how inviting and how hospitable and, and how gracious and loving they are toward me, no matter where that is, no matter where the differences may be, whether we're speaking a different language, whether we have a different skin color, whether we have different food and clothing and cultural traditions, our fellowship is sweet and refreshing and rewarding because we have Christ in common. And that's the most important thing in this world. Sometimes I travel and people say, where where do you stay? Well, I stay in the homes of other Christians a lot of times. Well, do you know them? No, I don't know them. I don't know them yet. But they're my brothers and my sisters and will gladly enter into their home and feast with them and fellowship with them. The world doesn't understand that. But there is mutual recognition and mutual refreshment in fellowship with other believers. In the book of Acts, there are more than 100 different Christians associated with the Apostle Paul alone. Well, he names 16 different friends in Romans chapter 16 alone. Now, here in the book of Colossians, he was true to form. He names 10 different people in the closing of this letter. And I have to imagine, if you and I were given the opportunity to write something knowing it would be our last word to go out to the world from us, or our final letter to some other church that we have some kind of relationship with, we might name people that we know. We might write names like Charlie and Debbie and Alan and Brenda and, and Andrew and Heather and Ben and Courtney and Mark and Virginia and Josh and Casey. And I, I think my letter would also include names like Olamide and Edwin and Nanso and Osanachi and Osagi and Nori and Joba and Alumide. You see, some of those names aren't common to you at all. But there are dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ who we will have fellowship with for all eternity. And I guarantee you that every one of them, you know at least one of them, would bring joy and delight and an instant sense of fellowship and unity to you if you spent time together with them. And so here in verses 10 through 14, Paul mentions six individuals who sent greetings to Rome from, or from Rome to Colossae. Three of them were Jews, and he mentions that. Three of them were Gentiles. Now, the three Jews were 
uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Eustace or Justice, Paul says, said of them, these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. And then he went on to name the Gentiles, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now, listen, as much as there is talk of racial and language and, and ethnic division in our day, the difference and animosities and the divisions because of these things in the first century was ten times worse. It was a hundred times worse. But what is Paul doing here? He is showing very clearly that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is one body in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what matters. From the very beginning, Jesus had demonstrated that this was the intent of the gospel, right? Jesus not only reaches people like me, he doesn't just reach people like you. He does not just reach rich people. He does not just reach poor people. He does not just reach white people or black people or American or South Africans or Asians. He does not just reach English speakers or Greek speakers, but he reaches all of us. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, he brings all of us together in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're Southern or a Yankee or a West Coaster or even if you're from Canada. I don't care if you're Igbo or Yorba or Hausa. I don't care any of these things. What I care about is if you are in Christ. And the fact that we as God's people can overcome and transcend all of these earthly differences is a work of God alone that we can stand united and show the world that in the Lord Jesus Christ we all understand that we are created in God's image. We are all in need of God's grace. We are all in need of God's forgiveness. We are all in need of Christ. And it is impossible to be ethnocentric in our hearts and be spirit-filled at the same time. That goes against everything Christ taught and teaches us. When a Christian refuses fellowship with other healthy, spirit-filled believers, there can only be one conclusion, and that is that something is wrong with their relationship with God. When we're having fullness of fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship and friendship with one another regardless of background. Right here, three Jewish believers in Rome were experiencing fullness and fellowship with all the Gentiles, and it was overflowing into the church in Colossae. That would have been unheard of. But we realize that we're fallen human beings, right? And so we understand that sometimes believers can be stubborn. We can be unchanging. We can be unforgiving. We can justify our distance from others. But others, like Paul and Mark, show us the way forward that they're able to forgive. They're able to move on from differences. Now, maybe you don't remember in the book of Acts, Young Mark, or he was called John Mark, he had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first great missionary journey when they had sent out from Antioch. 
Now, after ministering in Cyprus, John Mark abandoned Paul when he reached the shores of Pamphylia, returning to Jerusalem. We don't know why. It never tells us why. We can guess from Paul's writing that the hardships were incredible, that the stress was tremendous. It was, it was like that experienced by soldiers in combat. And then later, when Paul was planning another journey, remember Barnabas insisted that John Mark come along, but in probably what is the world's most uh, notorious dividing of believers, Paul refused to take him along. The result was this separation of as Barnabas took John Mark with him and Paul recruited Silas to go with him. But look, here we are about 12 years later in this letter. John Mark is where? He's with Paul in Rome, ministering to him in the midst of his imprisonment. And and so as Paul sent Mark's greeting to Colossae, He even commended him. He said, if he comes to you, welcome him. He's our brother. Welcome him. In the accompanying letter to Philemon, he calls John Mark his fellow worker. And later at the sunset of his ministry, at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, only Luke was with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. There was no way that these two men who loved God and were walking in fellowship with him would not have fellowship with one another. They worked out their differences. This is what true fellowship brings, right? If two believers cannot be reconciled, then either both or one of them is not in fellowship with God. If there is someone that you will not forgive, if there's someone you refuse to have fellowship with, but they are a believer, if there's someone you have no desire to forgive, though this person has humbly sought your forgiveness, there's an issue. There's an issue in your heart. If you're full of Christ, you will be like Him. And if you're like Christ, you will be forgiving and seeking reconciliation with other believers. Now the depth and breadth And beauty of Christian fellowship is seen in the desire of these six to send greetings to those in Colossae. Most of the six had never been there at all, but they loved the believers there anyway. They understood that they were all a part of one another. What Paul said about Epaphras in verse 12 suggests something of what they were like. Epaphras was from Colossae. And he had come all the way to Rome because he was concerned about the Gnostic heresy which threatened to rob the church of their fullness. And Paul said, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. And and Paul had watched Epaphras pray for the church in Colossae. He had no doubt of what his heart was and his concerns about the church. Epaphras cared and his prayers were, were directed against the heretics and toward the health of the church. And this was selfless, giving, big-hearted prayers for the people that he loved so dearly. Do you pray like that? Do you pray like that for God's church? Do you pray like that for Redeemer Baptist Church, for your brothers and sisters? Notice also, True fellowship means that there's a unity, not just among those that you're most like, but among the marginal or difficult people in the body as well. 
You might struggle to connect with someone or, or you might struggle to want to spend time with someone specifically or you try to avoid someone in the church. But true fellowship doesn't allow for that ultimately, does it? Look, Paul concluded with this greeting. He said, our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Now, Luke was the only Gentile writer of any book in the New Testament. He was a much-loved Christian, a physician, a devoted friend, a very careful historian, all in one. We know that from Luke's gospel and from the book of Acts. But Demas, oh, Demas, he's another story altogether, isn't he? He's no Luke. (laughs) Now, remember, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote that Demas loved the world and deserted Paul. So, Perhaps here, Paul is already aware of Demas' spiritual slide because he was the only one of the six of whom there's no comment or greeting, but he still mentions him, doesn't he? He still gives his greeting. He wants to lovingly give him the benefit of the doubt until Demas proves that Paul should do otherwise. Christian fellowship is not meant to be perfect. It won't be. It will stretch us. There will be challenges. There will be hiccups along the way with one another. There will be times when you want to give up. You might want nothing to do with another person and just say, what's the point? I've tried. It's not working. But you know, love believes all things and hopes all things. And forgiveness isn't just once or, tw- or twice or seven times. It's 70 times, seven times. It's over and over and over again as we continue to go back and we continue to pursue and we continue to love even when that person seems so unlovable. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves as we stare at the mirror, we realize that when our sins are exposed before God, when our hearts are laid bare, that we're pretty unlovable too. But the Lord Jesus loves us anyway. He forgives us anyway. He continues to love us even though we aren't committed to our fellowship with him in the way that he's committed to his fellowship with us. That's why. And so Paul concludes in verses 15 and 18 and shows us that Christians ought to remember one another in prayer and words of encouragement. Paul's final greeting here was a three-part encouragement. First, in verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, Paul had never been to Laodicea either, but his large-heartedness compelled him to greet the church there and to this specific woman, Nympha, who so graciously hosted the church in her home. And so that's his first word of encouragement. Secondly, in verse 16, he said, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul encourages the exchange of letters he was sending to Laodicea and to Colossae. He wanted them to be read aloud as we read the scriptures. Now we know that in the future, Laodicea would need all the help that it could get. We learn that in Revelation chapter 3. It became the church, remember, that was neither hot nor cold, but had become lukewarm and was spit out or rejected by Christ. Now, as a, as a sort of a side note here, we see that Paul wrote another letter that we don't have to the church at Laodicea. Notice he mentions that letter. 
It was lost at some point. We don't have the book of Laodicea in the Bible. So we should probably assume that Paul actually wrote many letters, many letters that we don't have access to. There's good evidence that there was a third letter to the Corinthians, for example, that we don't have. So not all that Paul wrote was inspired scripture, and we should trust by faith that should it have been preserved for our use today, then the Lord would have preserved it, but he didn't. And so we simply trust that the Lord has given us what is sufficient and complete, and we don't need to read the letter to Laodicea, but we have to acknowledge that very clearly it did exist at one point. Now, the third encouragement we see in verse 17 is that Paul encouraged a young leader in the Colossian church. He said, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, from Philemon, many deduce that Archippus was the son of Philemon. Perhaps Epaphras told the apostle of Archippus's budding spiritual life, his potential as a minister of the Lord. We don't really know, but I think this is a positive exhortation. It was a word of encouragement from the apostle to this young minister who Paul heard was doing great things for the kingdom of God. But whatever the motivation, Paul reminded him that his ministry originated in the Lord. It was divinely given. It must be treated as a divine ministry. And so Paul told him he must complete it. Well, at this point in the letter, at the end, Paul has recited the entire letter to someone called an amanuensis. An amanuensis was essentially a secretary whom writers would dictate their words to and the amanuensis would write all of it down as they spoke it. But here at the end of the letter... Just think of this moment. Paul had been so caught up in the glorious truth about Christ, speaking slowly enough as he's thinking and as he's wanting to say things exactly right to the amanuensis, giving him time to write it all down. Maybe a few hours had gone by as Paul is reciting this letter and he had thought about all of the glorious truths about Christ and his preeminence. He thought about all the implications of of the faith for the Colossians as they combated the false teaching of Gnosticism. He had worked through the home and, and the workplace, and he had encouraged faithful, loving relationships and, and fellowship and grace and forgiveness and the gathering of the church. And all of this by his voice is recorded on paper. But now, now Paul stretches out his own hand probably sore, probably damaged from the chains. And he wrote the last words of this letter. All of his profound teaching, all of his thunderings and lightnings from his voice ended in this simple cry which goes straight to the heart. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What a wonderful reminder to all of us. No matter our circumstances, no matter what we face, that we remember one another in prayer and words of encouragement, that we remember our brothers and sisters that in this moment, right here, right now, in this world, that are in chains for the sake of Christ. Remember their chains. Remember them in prayer. But should that even be us one day? 
Paul was in jail. Paul was in prison. Paul was in chains. But no power of earth could chain his heart. Paul closed with the apostolic benediction very simply. He said, grace be with you. A closing word of grace. This was a trademark of the Apostle Paul in all of his letters. Grace be with you. A glorious ending to a glorious letter. When all is said and done, when we have begun to grasp the fullness of Christ and the glory of God and the implication of God's work in our lives, may we rest finally and fully in Him alone. Only Christ can give us what we need. And when that happens, it is only by His grace that it is accomplished. So dear brothers and sisters, grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this tremendous letter, for the glorious truths that we have discovered as we've considered the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ in all things, as we have considered the truth about Christ and who He is and what He did and is doing and will forever do and who He is and who He will be. We thank You that this is a letter that is so full of Christ that our hearts are drawn more and more to our Savior. We thank You that You, by the Apostle Paul, have worked out many of the implications of these truths for us to behold and to put to practice in our own lives that we can work out, that we can dwell upon, that we can contemplate, that we can encourage one another in, that we, need, that we not be brought away by false teaching, but that we remember who Christ is, that we remember the gospel, and we re- remember all of the implications of this in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our workplaces, in our community, that in all of these things that we might be remembered not as some super magnificent people who did something extraordinary, but as Christian people who are faithful to Christ, who are faithful to the church, who are faithful to our Lord Jesus in all things, that you might be pleased to continuously be gracious toward us, that when we close our eyes on this earth and awaken on the shores of heaven, that we will know your touch, that we will know your mercy, that we will know your kindness, that we will forever know your love. Thank you, dear God, that by Christ this is possible for each and every one of us. And it is the reality for all of us who by faith trust in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.